whom you thought you knew pretty well, and your opinion of that person you thought was pretty accurate, but then you learned something about that person, about their past, or something about their character that caused your opinion of them to change in the sense that it became even deeper and more solidified. Maybe you had a, a negative opinion of someone and then you learned something about their past or you learned something about some activity that they're involved in and that caused your negative opinion of them to get even more negative. Or perhaps you have had a positive opinion of someone and then you learned something of their past, something that they've done, some um, activity that they did that they did not promote or didn't didn't make known, but then you, then you found out about it and that caused your positive opinion of them to grow even more positive. Well, that's the um, scenario that we come to today in Acts chapter 9. We think we know pretty much about the Apostle Paul, but actually there's quite a few things about Paul that we don't know. Acts chapter 9 will tell us some of those things, but it'll still leave some more things unknown. But as we delve into the Apostle Paul in his past, we will, I think, discover some things about him that will cause our positive opinion of him to get even more positive. He will become to us, I think, an even greater example of faith for us. The Apostle Paul has a character that is like an iceberg. You know what an iceberg, when you look at an iceberg, what do you see? You see the tip of the iceberg, right? And there's so much more of the iceberg under the surface that you don't see. That is like the Apostle Paul. That is like his character. We look at him and we see the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more that remains unseen that's beneath the surface. So we're here in Acts chapter 9. We're going we're gonna to be looking at verse 20 through 31. And let's just begin reading here in verse 20. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of who of those who called upon his this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know how... Some people are just simply not as good of storytellers as others. We are not all created equal in the sense of our storytelling ability, right? I think of, of some of those who are just classic storytellers, those who could just weave a yarn that would draw you right in, like uh, Jerry Clower comes to mind. He could just tell a story. 
Well, not all of us can tell a story as well as Jerry Clower could tell a story. Some of us tell a story in a way that, that is frustrating, right? It's frustrating to me to listen to a story that's being told in which significant details of the story are left out. And we do that sometimes, don't we? We tell a story that we know very well. And because we know the story very well, we sometimes forget that others don't know the story. And so when we're telling the story, we sort of get caught up in it. We can leave out important details of the story, details that piece things together for us in our mind. Things like uh, the beginning of the story. Sometimes we'll start a story in the middle or we'll leave out crucial details of the story. And um, that makes it frustrating to, to listen to a story like that. We see a little bit of that going on in Acts chapter 9. Luke is a fine storyteller. However, in Acts chapter 9, he seems to leave out some very significant details, things that, that cause the story to um, well be lacking in, in some way. The, the uh, verses that we just read, verse 20 down through verse 31, as we read that, it seems like maybe two or three weeks pass, maybe a couple of months go by. But in reality, we will see that 15 years pass, or perhaps even more. But at least 15 years pass between verse 20 and verse 31. And it certainly doesn't seem that way as we read it. And it doesn't seem that way because Luke has left out huge chunks of Paul's life. We're going to try this morning to plug those chunks in. So we'll do something a little bit different in the sense that we will be looking at Acts chapter 9, but we're also going to have to incorporate a couple of other passages to sort of plug in some details for the story. The first passage that, that you'll need to find in your Bibles is Galatians 1. Hold your place in Acts 9 and find Galatians 1 and then also find 2 Corinthians 11. We'll need both of those passages to kind of plug in here. I've gone ahead and printed these in your bulletin inserts. So you can refer to your bulletin insert or you can find in your Bibles Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians 11. In addition to those two passages, we'll be looking ahead in the Acts story, and we'll get some more details from the Acts story. And we're going to put all these things together. We're going to plug them into Acts chapter 9, and we're going to try to come up with as complete of a story or a complete as a, of a history of the Apostle Paul as we can. So now beginning in verse 20. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. We notice right away that word immediately. What does immediately mean? It means Right away, without delay. So without delay, Paul begins preaching in the synagogue. So what is the, uh, the, the preceding event that, that Paul preaches immediately after? What, what happened right before this? Well, looking up to verse 16, 17, 18, 19, we see that was the conversion of Paul. He was on the Damascus road. Just previous to this, the scales have fallen from his eyes. His, Sight has been restored. He's been given spiritual sight. He's been converted, in other words. He's been baptized. He's joined the disciples. Right away, he preaches Christ in the synagogue. He's the Son of God, he said. So we see here the same sort of thing that we've seen elsewhere, and that is that a Spirit-filled individual speaks powerfully for Christ as though he has no choice. It is though Paul is just compelled he doesn't have to talk himself into speaking about Christ. He's just moved along to do this. He's filled with the Spirit. And so therefore, being filled with the Spirit, he preaches. It's the most natural thing in the world for the one to lead to the other. We think back to chapter 4. Remember back in chapter 4, Peter and John were drugged before the Sanhedrin Council once again. 
And uh, we see in chapter 4, verse 8, Peter's filled with the Spirit. And then verse 20, he says this. They, they tell Peter and John, stop preaching, stop speaking about this man, Jesus. And Peter responds and says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have no choice. The Spirit compels us. Paul will say a similar thing later on to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. He says this, For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the Gospel. So Paul, just like Peter and John, does not have to talk himself into speaking about Christ. He doesn't have to work up his courage. He doesn't have to debate in his own mind, should I tell others about Jesus? He's filled with the Spirit, and that filling of the Spirit compels him to speak. And he speaks in the synagogues. Who else is in the synagogues? Who, who is in the synagogues hearing him? In the synagogues are unconverted Jews, but also the very ones that Saul came to arrest. Remember, he goes to Damascus to arrest those in the synagogues who were believing upon Jesus. So apparently they're still there. They're hearing Paul preach these things. I wonder what's going through their mind as they're hearing these things. So Paul is preaching. What's he preaching? He is the Son of God. We see here a picture of a transformed human being. An utterly, completely transformed human being. Remember we said last time that Paul is the Bible's illustration. It is the Bible's very picture of what it means to be a new creature in Christ. A new creation in Christ. He is a transformed person. So being transformed, he preaches this message in the synagogue. Now you may notice as we kind of go through this, you may notice um, Paul go, kind of goes by two names. There, there's Saul and there's Paul, right? Well, um, sometimes we think that, that uh, God, when he converted Saul, gave him a new name, like Jacob became Israel or Abram became Abraham or Simon became Peter. But that's not the case. God never gave Paul a new name. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. And so... He, he never um, um, became a Roman. He was both a Hebrew and a Roman. Both names apply to him. But he is going at this point by his, his Hebrew name, Saul, which is um, it's a very prideful name. He was named after the first king of Israel. He, he was a Benjamite. He was proud of his Hebrew heritage. Now he begins to go by the name Paul. In fact, by the, by we get, by the time we get to chapter 13, Paul will exclusively be called Paul and never Saul again. Every one of his epistles, he refers to himself as Paul. Now, the word Paul literally means small. So even in the name that he goes by, we see that this man is transformed. His pride is gone. He is now humble. He is a transformed person. No longer the prideful person that he was, but he's now humble. We see that so very clearly in the message that he preaches. He says in the synagogues, he, meaning Jesus, is the Son of God. Think of what had to happen to Paul in order for him to preach that message. What had to happen to him? Paul has to admit that he has been wrong. Now that's not easy to do, is it? How easy is it to admit that we're wrong? It's hard, right? You ever had to admit that you're wrong? I did one time. wasn't easy. But we have to do that. We have to admit that we're wrong. And it's very hard to do that even with small things like uh, admitting that you're wrong about who's going to win the Super Bowl or or uh, here's one admitting that you're wrong about 
a certain road that you think is a shortcut. You ever been there? You know, and you're driving and, you, and your normal way of going somewhere, you say, oh, this will be shorter and uh, your wife disagrees, but you go that way anyway and then 20 minutes later, when you're still trying to figure out where you are, uh, you, you have to admit that you've been wrong and that's not easy, is it? Well, as hard as it is to admit that we've been wrong about small things like shortcuts, how much harder is it to admit that you've been wrong about bigger things, like, for example, the basis of your life. Paul has based his entire life upon this theology that says, among other things, the Messiah is not a suffering Messiah. The Messiah is a victorious political figure. Paul has based his entire life, he's built everything upon that, and now he must admit, he must admit that he is wrong. You see here a picture on the screen of a man named Antony Flew. Antony Flew was, he passed away in 2010, but he was one of the world's most prominent, well-written, well-articulated atheists. He wrote prolifically. Um, his his uh, whole mantra was that there is no God. He wrote prolifically against the existence of God. And one thing that Antony Flew did was he engaged in many scholarly debates. In fact, I've, I've read, had to read much of Anthony Flew's writings because he would engage very regularly with Christian scholars, evangelical Christian scholars, over the existence of God, uh, particularly Gary Habermas. He would debate, debate with Gary Habermas. And here's how it worked. They would debate in print. Anthony Flew would write something, and uh, Gary Habermas, uh, he would publish it, and then, and then a Christian scholar like uh, Gary Habermas or some, some others, would respond in print, and they would publish an answer, and then Antony Flew would publish an answer to that, and then someone would publish an answer to that, and that's how these debates, debates went on. And, um, and so I'd read quite a bit of those debates back and forth. They were friendly, but um, at the same time, Antony Flew was firm in his belief that there was no God. <clears throat> well, in 2004, when Dr. Flew was in his early 80s, he changed his mind about everything. In fact, he wrote a book in 2006 entitled, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now, how hard was that for Anthony Flew to do? He had built his entire career, decades-long career, upon this premise that there is no God. And here he admits that he's been wrong all along. That was not easy to do. That's similar to what the Apostle Paul does here. He admits that he's been wrong. Jesus is the Son of God, verse 21. And all who had heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That word proving there literally means join together or put together. So that's what Saul's doing. He's putting together the Old Testament prophecies. And who better to do that than he? Trained as a rabbi, trained in the Pharisee, in the Pharisaic way. Knew his scriptures better than most of us know our scriptures. And so he, better than, than most others in the synagogue, could join together or put together these prophecies that show that Jesus was the Christ. Because like Jesus said in Luke 24, all the prophecies and all the law are about me. 
So, so uh, Paul is doing this. He's proving that Jesus was the Christ. Then verse 23, we have a gap here. We, we, we have um, in the space between verse 22 and 23, something else happens. And to see this, we need to go to Galatians chapter 1. So if you have Galatians 1, let's look at Galatians 1 beginning in verse 15. This takes place between verse 22 and verse 23 of Acts chapter 9. So Paul says here, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. So all that takes place between verse 22 and verse 23. Saul goes, first of all, to Arabia. Now, what is Arabia? Arabia is a wilderness. We're familiar with it because the nation of Israel spent about 40 years there. We're familiar with it because it has a very famous mountain called Mount Sinai. That's where Paul goes. To the wilderness of Arabia, to the place where Mount Sinai is. There are so many connections I could make here. We could spend 30 minutes talking about all the connections between Paul going to the area in which Mount Sinai is, which is where Israel receives the law, and Paul becomes the greatest preacher of grace. We could connect all of that. We could talk about Moses, who also went into Arabia to be prepared for ministry. We could talk about uh, Elijah, who came from the wilderness of Arabia. We could talk about how Moses and Elijah are seen together with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus says, what they say, they are saying this about me. We could talk about all of those connections, but we'll skip all of that. And we'll just bring our attention to this. What is Saul doing? Saul is going to Arabia for a period of solitude to prepare himself for his ministry for God. Paul is going into a period of solitude. We don't know how long it is. Could have been a few months. Could have been a few years. But Paul goes to Arabia in order to be alone with God in order to be prepared for what God has for him. Folks, never neglect your time alone with God. We need to spend time alone with God on a regular basis in order to be prepared for what God has for us. You might have at your house a cordless telephone. We, we've, got a, we've got a cordless telephone at our house. And I can tell you what happens to that cordless phone if it sits on the kitchen table for a couple of days. It doesn't work. And you pick up the phone to call somebody and it won't call anybody because it has run dry of its charge. And so what that phone must do every day, it must sit in its cradle, connected to its power source. That is what it has to do each and every day in order to be useful for the purpose that it is intended to be useful for. Folks, we're just like that cordless phone. We must sit in our cradle every day connected to our source of, of power in order to be useful for the kingdom of God. Don't neglect your time alone with God. But that's, that's not this sort of daily time alone with God. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is spending an extended period of time alone with God. An extended period of time. I think of David here, King David. Remember King David? What did he grow up as? He, he grew up as yeah, shepherd boy. Shepherd boy. And what do shepherd boys do in the Middle East? 
Well, they uh, care for the sheep. They make sure the sheep have water. They make sure the sheep have grass. They chase away lions and wolves and stuff. Now, I've never been a shepherd boy, but I think of that, and I, and I think, okay, all of that must take, I don't know, three, four hours a day. What does a shepherd do with the rest of his time? doesn't have a Game Boy with him or a cell phone with him. It's just him and the sheep and the rocks. What does a shepherd do with his time? Well, we know some of the things that David did with his time, like learn to play music, learn to write songs, an ability which God used very powerfully later on in, in the court of King Saul, and later on as David was this prolific writer of psalms. David learned that in his time alone with God. Something else David learned during his extended time with God, I think was, uh, I think David spent some time practicing throwing rocks. Something else that David used powerfully in his ministry with, with, for God. So you see how God used David's extended time alone to prepare him for what God had in store for him later on. Folks, it's the same with us. Sometimes God desires for us to spend extended periods alone with Him. Extended periods of non-productivity in order to be prepared for what He has for us. How does He do that for us today? I think perhaps one of the, the most common ways that God does that is through illnesses. You know, you ever had just a million things to do and you don't have time for this and all of a sudden you get the flu? And for the next five days, you're in bed. Or maybe a, a serious illness comes on and for the next couple of weeks or three or four weeks, you're on your backside. Something you never would have chosen to do. However, you're sort of forced to do that. Folks, don't neglect that time. Don't neglect that time. Those times of extended non-productivity. We don't do well with non-productivity, do we? What are our lives like? If your life is anything like mine, <clears throat> then your life kind of goes something like this. I'm, am, I'm amazed at, at how much I have to fit into my life. My life, every day, seven days a week, is just packed full. Sometimes I feel like a fish swimming against a fast-moving stream, right? And sometimes God will take us out of that fast-moving stream in order to prepare us for some things. And that's usually not very comfortable. We don't like being taken out of that stream. We, we, we sort of don't know what to do with ourselves. But folks, don't neglect that time. Use that as a time of refreshing, a time of doubling down on your training, on your equipping, on your relationship with God. Because when God puts you back into that fast-moving stream, you're going to need what He intends to give you when you're out of the stream. Don't neglect those times of solitude with God. So now, that passes between verse 22 and verse 23. And now verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Him. So now let's look at, once again at Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 17. So Paul goes away to Arabia and then he returns again to Damascus. Verse 18, Then after three years, I went up to, to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, otherwise known as, as Peter. So that's what occurs here, verse 23. Now take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 23 tells us the Jews are plotting to kill him in Damascus. Looking at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32, we read this, Paul says, At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. So, not only are the Jews plotting to kill him, but so are the Syrians. The governor of Damascus also wants to kill Saul. Why in the world? What's, what's Paul done to make the Syrians mad? Probably something to do with preaching the gospel, I imagine. Now, verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by day and by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. You can't help but think of Rahab there and the, the spies escaping from Jericho through the wall. But here, Paul now uh, escapes and goes to Jerusalem, but what Luke doesn't tell us is that Paul has spent three years here now. He, he went away to Arabia, spent however much time he was there, comes back to Damascus, spends three years preaching the gospel here. And Luke doesn't even tell us. He says, when many days had passed. That's not exactly how I would have put it. But that's how Luke puts it. When many days had passed. In other words, more than three years have passed. And this, this whole time, he's been preaching the gospel. And look at the rejection that he's given. Nothing but rejection, it seems like. Now they want to kill him. The, the Syrians want to kill him. The Jews want to kill him. That's the story of Paul's life, isn't it? Looking back up at verse 16. Here Jesus says to, to uh, Ananias, For I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's the story of Paul's life. Paul's life was a, the story of one suffering after another. One beating after another. One rejection after another. One imprisonment after another. One shipwreck after another. Now let's compare that to, say, the ministry of Philip. How different were the ministries of Paul and Philip? Philip was the sort of guy, he just sort of had a way of just coming into town right when people were ready to receive the gospel. He just cruises into Samaria, starts preaching, and outbreaks a revival. Then he goes to the desert in Gaza, and what do you know? There's an Ethiopian there reading Isaiah 53. Philip just shows up when the fruit is ready to be picked. Paul, on the other hand, will harvest fruit for the kingdom, but all of that fruit seems to be just hard-won fruit. So, how do you think Paul thought of the ministry of Philip? How do you think Paul felt when he looked to the ministry of this man, Philip, who just seems to have so much success that comes so easily and so quickly. And here Paul is, rejection after rejection after rejection. What do you think Paul thought of that? We don't know what Paul thought of it, but we do know that Paul never wrote about it. We do know that he doesn't seem to be focused or worried at all about Philip or what anybody else is doing. He seems to be worried only about himself. Folks, don't spend your time looking to the Philips around you. Sometimes God uses us like He uses Paul. Sometimes He uses us like He uses Philip. Most of the time, which one is it? Most of the time it's Paul, isn't it? Don't spend your time looking to the Philips around you. If you do, it will frustrate you and discourage you and it will destroy what God seeks to do through you. Paul doesn't do this, neither should we. Now, moving on, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. More rejection here. 
they don't believe his disciple is a disciple, and so they are um, kind of being standoffish here to him. Uh, the uh, the apostles in Jerusalem didn't, by the way, they didn't get the same memo that Ananias got. They didn't get the same vision from Jesus that Ananias got, even though even though Paul has been preaching in Damascus for three plus years now. Even now, they're still afraid of him, which gives us a clue as to how much Paul was feared before this. Now, verse 27, but Barnabas, here comes Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So here comes Barnabas once again. We remember him from chapter 4. He was the guy giving away all of his stuff to the church and the one whom Ananias and Sapphira were so jealous of. Here comes Barnabas again, coming to Paul's defense, to his rescue. He says, listen, let me, let me show you guys. This, re- this guy Paul really is okay. He really is one of us. Here's the proof. The proof is A, he knows Jesus. B, he preaches about Jesus. That's the proof that Paul belongs to Jesus Christ because he knows Jesus and he's telling people about Jesus. I wonder if that's the proof that others look for in our life, if they would find it. Do they see us telling people about Jesus? Now, verse 28, And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now looking over, once again, Galatians 1, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. And then he goes on to say that he was also there with James, the brother of Jesus. So he's there with Peter two weeks. During this two weeks, Peter is teaching him mentoring him, counseling him. You see the teachable heart of Paul? He allows someone who's older in the faith to teach him, even though Paul is trained in the Scriptures, even though Paul met Jesus Christ face to face himself, even though he's now spent this time in Arabia, even though now he's spent this time preaching in Damascus, he still has a teachable heart. Folks, we need to have teachable hearts, just like Paul. Now verse 29, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him again. This is the story of Paul's life. Everywhere he goes, people want to kill him. Now, uh, looking quickly, just real quickly, let's flip over to Acts 22. Paul's in Jerusalem now, and God's going to give him, or Jesus will come to him in a vision. And Luke, or, uh, Paul tells us about it in chapter 22, verse 17. And when I, Paul, had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw Jesus saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in the synagogues, one synagogue after another, I imprisoned those who believed in, believe in you. And, and I was there holding the, uh, I was the witness for when Stephen was stoned, etc., etc. And Jesus says to him, verse 21, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul gets that vision right here, right at this point when he's in Jerusalem. Now verse 30, And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So now let's flip over again to Galatians 1, now verse 21. Now Paul says, Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. Tarsus is the capital of Sicilia. So Paul now goes to his home, hometown region. Uh, verse 22 of Galatians 1, verse 22, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, and only, they were only hearing it saying that uh, he, used, he used to persecute us. He's now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. So now Paul goes into Tarsus or Sicilia. And um, from this point, it will, be, it will be 10 years 
before we hear Paul again. Not until chapter 11, 10 years later, Barnabas will then bring Paul to Antioch. So 10 years, Paul is going to spend in Sicilia, the region of Tarsus. What's he doing all this time? Is he on vacation? Taking it easy? We flip over to chapter 15, Acts 15, verse 41. Paul and Silas are getting ready to depart on a uh, missionary mission. Verse 41, And when Paul went through Syria and Sicilia, he strengthened the churches there. So Paul and Silas take a trip through Sicilia and Syria, strengthening the churches. Question, how did those churches get there? Paul planted them. That's what Paul's been doing for 10 years. Planting churches. This is the same time that he plants the Galatian churches. So Paul's not on vacation. He's working for the kingdom. And he's also suffering for the kingdom. Let's look finally at 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24. This is one of the, one of the three times in the second letter to the Corinthians that Paul lists some of the sufferings that he has endured for Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, danger from rivers, robbers, etc., etc., etc. So Paul says to the Corinthians, five times I was beaten by the Jews. Three times I was beaten by the Romans. Three times I was shipwrecked. Folks, where do we read about those? We read about one Roman beating in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. Search the epistles of Paul. Search the book of Acts. We don't read about those other two Roman beatings. The five Jewish beatings? We don't read about any of those anywhere. The three shipwrecks? We're going to read about one shipwreck in chapter 27. The other, the other two? Who knows? What's the point? The point is, all of those things happened during this 10 years, and we don't know about it. Because Paul never told us. Paul never described it. He, he sort of throws it into a list here to the Corinthians. But he doesn't go around bragging. Listen, let me tell you about these five times the Jews beat me within an inch of my life. Let me tell you about the three times the Romans beat me with rods. Paul doesn't do that. Why? Because he's serving Christ in secret. He's suffering for Him in secret in the sense that he, is, he does not desire to make it known how much he suffered for Christ. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 6. During the Sermon on the Mount, remember, He says in Matthew 6 that um, verse 1, Beware practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He goes on to talk about giving. And he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Later on, verse 16, he talks about fasting. When you fast, then anoint your head with oil and take a bath. and Don't let people know that you're fasting. For the purpose, Jesus says in verse 4, that what you do for the Father in secret, He will reward you publicly. Paul is suffering intensely during this time for Christ. More intensely then he'll suffer later on after he comes back to Jerusalem or, or Antioch. And the point is, it's not his desire to brag about that. It's not, it's not his desire to make that seem. He will suffer for God in secret ways here. Now let, let's quickly finish up with verse 31. 
All right. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That verse there is, is like a snapshot. And it? it's, it's like a snapshot of the life of the early church at this point. They were um, they had peace and were being built up. Now, the fact that they had peace, does that mean that nobody was persecuting them? Does that mean that now that, that Paul went away into Tarsus, that, that nobody's persecuting the Christians here in, in Damascus or Jerusalem or anywhere else? Of course not, folks. Peace in the Bible means peace with God primarily. So they have peace with God, not necessarily peace with those who hate the Gospel. We never have peace with those who hate the Gospel. But they have peace, they're being built up. Now the other sentence here, verse, uh, verse 31 again, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Folks, I marvel. I marvel today at how great is our ability and our tendency to twist Scripture to fit our purpose. We twist Scripture all the time to fit our purpose. We take things like this, this sentence here, and we very much want the end of the sentence. The last word here is multiplied. We very much want the multiplied part. We even want the part before that. Walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. We want the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We want the multiplication. We want the growth. But we don't want the first part. And walking in the fear of the Lord. Now what does it mean when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord? You know we play so many word games with that. The fear of the Lord means reverence. The fear of the Lord means awe and respect for God. No, it doesn't. Folks, there are perfectly good Greek and Hebrew words that mean reverence, respect, and awe. But the word the Bible chooses is fear. Let me suggest something to you. When the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord, let me suggest to you that it means precisely what it says. The fear of the Lord. It means the same thing that the psalmist means in, in Psalm 133. when it says, Tremble, O earth, before the Lord. Tremble. But that's the part we don't want because... In our minds, this fear of the Lord doesn't go along with trust. It doesn't go along with the trust of the Lord and love of the Lord. And so, because we think they don't go together, we want to take one of them away. So we'll take away the fear of the Lord because people don't want that. Who wants to come to a church to hear about a God that needs to be feared? Who wants to come to a church that, that they hear about a God who judges sin and holds us to standards of living? People don't want to hear about that. So to get to the multiplied part, we need to skip over the fear of the Lord part. That's how we think. Because we think we're smarter than God. We think we know better than God how His church works. And so thinking that the fear of the Lord is something that needs to be at least de-emphasized, if not jettisoned altogether, we just skip over that part. Because we don't believe that a God who is to be feared will be appealing to people. Some of you are familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a series of children's books written by C.S. Lewis, I guess in the 50s, maybe the 60s, probably 50s. 
it was made into a movie a few years back. But that, that, if you've seen the movie, the movie was just a tiny, tiny little portion of the series of books that was this series that C.S. Lewis wrote. But if you've seen the movie, you kind of know what it is, what it's about. The, the, the series of books is all about Jesus Christ and our atonement and how He suffered on our part. He took our sin upon Himself so that we, through faith in Him, might receive His righteousness, this divine switching places. That's what the book is all about. And so, in the series, the, the lion represents Jesus. The lion is Jesus. And his, the lion's name is Aslan. And in the series of books, there, there comes a point where um, there's, well, by the way, there's human characters and animal characters. And there's a point in the book where some animal characters are talking to the human characters in the book, and they're talking about Aslan. And a character named Mr. Beaver is trying to describe Aslan, who, again, represents Jesus. And he's trying to describe Aslan. And as he's trying to describe Aslan, a girl named Susan speaks up and says, "This Aslan, is, is, he, is he quite safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He is not safe. But he is good. Later on, the group gets to meet Aslan. And at that point, the narrator breaks in and says this, those who have never been to Narnia cannot understand how a thing can be both good and terrible at the same time. Folks, those who do not know Jesus Christ, I mean, know Him, also do not understand how a thing can be both good and terrible at the same time. Both worthy of our fear and deserving of our trust all at the same time. Take away a fear of the Lord and what you're left with is a God who is not worthy of your worship. And if a God is not worthy of your worship, then neither is He worthy of your dedication. And if He's not worthy of your dedication, why in the world would you tell anyone about Him? Jesus tells us how it is that His church will grow. John chapter 6, If I be lifted up, I will draw men unto Me. Jesus didn't say, if you lift up some sort of teddy bear God that's all love and all forgiveness and no judgment, some sort of cuddly teddy bear like that, lift that up and He'll draw all men unto it. Jesus said, if I be lifted up in spirit and in truth, I will draw all men unto myself. You see, folks, a God who is not worthy of your fear, neither is He worthy of your worship, neither will He draw anyone to Him. The rest of the sentence says this, walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplies. The comfort of the Holy Spirit goes right along with the fear of the Lord there. There is no comfort of the Holy Spirit for those who do not fear the Lord to go together.